Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the March 11th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. This week, we bring you a look at a controversial film from Belgium called Girl that finally makes its delayed debut on Netflix. We revisit a documentary that deals with a transgendered filmmaker, her brain-damaged brother, and Hollywood royalty called Prodigal Sons. Visit an early gay bar in Los Angeles. And I chat with Lynn Sagerblom, or Fairy Argyle Rainbow, about her role in the creation of the iconic rainbow flag. But first, let's spill some tea. The honest tea. Oh, let's revisit a classic topic just one more time, shall we? So, welcome back, Wenzel. Nothing's changed. (laughs) It's gotten worse. Maybe. A little bit. Well, apparently the trans ban is now going forward. They've run out of options, but... Yeah, it's going forward. Well, they haven't run out of options. It's still making its way up through the courts, but in the meantime, it's going. And I I don't like the way this is trending, though, because (gasps) it's one of those things you can put it aside and say, well, I'm not in the military and I'm not transgender, so... I'm going to pick another fight. It's like, no, this this is this a fight. This is a You've, core fight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if, if this actually goes, then, you know, who's next? So kind of the procedural thing and the reason why we keep coming back and going, it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off, is that there are a number of cases that have started in the federal courts around the country. There are actually four of them, I think, at last count, of people challenging this ban in these federal courts. And there were four injunctions. So an injunction is a court order for a party to do something or not do something. And people often seek preliminary injunctions. Thank you, my lawyer friend, for the explanation. Did you not know? (laughs) I sort of knew. Okay. (laughs) So a preliminary injunction is what a party to a lawsuit will ask for saying, just right now, court, can you just put this on pause or something. In this case, it's put the ban on pause because it will cause great harm while we're trying to figure out whether the ban is legal or not. So four of these courts then issued these injunctions. So, you know, court in San Diego, for example, can issue an injunction and that injunction applies to the whole country. So let's just remember, this all started with a tweet in 2017 from the president that obviously was not a tweet based on any policy conversations. Just going to keep reminding people of that. Since that time, one of the D.C. uh, appellate courts lifted one of the injunctions, and then the Supreme Court actually lifted two of the injunctions. That was weird, too, because they did that in the context of denying the government's request that they fast-track their hearing of this case. So that was sort of a win-lose situation. And then it's not a ban of all transgender personnel, is it? It's only the ones who are transitioning or who have yet to transition? I mean, Determining on what constitutes transition is being left to a bunch of people like Mike Pence. I'm sorry. Oh, good idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> that that's a whole other thing. So <laughs> then a court in Maryland finally lifted the fourth injunction, meaning that the ban can go forward even though these cases are still being worked out and it may go the other way. And when you seek an injunction, you tell the court that there will be irreparable damage if you allow this thing to go forward. I have a hard time seeing how this is not going to cause irreparable damage because people can actually be routed out of the military now based on this. And normally I'm not a fan of lawyers, though I do love you dearly. But mm-hmm. I am frankly glad there's a lot of lawyers to throw at this sort of thing because... Yep. Yep. But 
Every uh, every time you hear a new story, you think, wow, there must be a million lawyers in this country sitting around with nothing to do because oh, we no, don't run out. <laughs> no, they've got a lot to do. Yeah. So the White House's position, though, this I thought was really interesting, is that their response to all these junctions is that they are now a trend in the lower courts. This is what they say. It's a trend to stop the Trump administration. So, like, yes, a court in California can go stop, say, the Muslim ban or any of the other atrocious things the Trump administration is doing. And I would say that's the courts working exactly as they're supposed to. But they're taking that victim position, which they do so well. And again, this started with a tweet, right? not policy. And I'm really worried that all of this stuff kind of gives the imprimatur of legitimacy to that damn tweet. Well, I know it's the way we found out that the the whole build the wall was just a a mnemonic device. Really? Yeah, when he was out uh, speechifying during the campaign. And they, here we are. And, and they couldn't get him to remember anything, so they just taught him the phrase build the wall so he could focus on one thing, make a point, and he ran with it. And, and government it was, shutdown and yeah, policy right. and all half the Congress lining yeah. up behind it. Yeah, it was based on nothing except his inability to remember and focus. Okay, well, we will definitely keep an eye on that and keep talking about that. However, yes. in the plus column. Yay. You know, progressives, I'm going to say right now, give credit where credit is due. Nancy Pelosi, she has announced that on Tuesday, the 12th, mm-hmm. um, a the House of Representatives will announce a bill, someone, I don't know who's sponsoring this bill, the 2019 Equality Act, which is a non-discrimination LGBTQ um, bill that will be introduced in the House of Representatives. And I am very glad to hear this because I remember... That that was a big part of electing progressives to the House was we are going to pass this Equality Act. And they got in and I never heard another word. And I thought, oh, please, please don't be one of those empty promises. Yeah, don't ask, don't tell. Suddenly they've gotten us all on side. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear. And I guess it's going to be basically a a remodeling of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Yeah. They're just going to be adding gender identity to to the list of Classes Protected of people. classes. Yes, yes. Gender identity and sexual right, orientation. Right, right. Civil Rights Act currently deals with sex discrimination and discrimination on the basis of race, um, and also the Fair Housing Act. Right. And so I was kind of interested in some of the history behind this, and I was like, well, what happened to ENDA? You know, so ENDA was the the non-discrimination in employment. Well, this is kind of what ENDA has morphed into. But I was surprised to see that the very first Equality Act was actually introduced in 1974. Oh. And it didn't have transgender protections, but then that sort of turned into ENDA in 1994, and that was introduced in every Congress except for one until a couple of years ago. And then the ENDA added trans protections in by Barney Frank, also giving credit where credit is due, mm-hmm. in 2009. And so I guess ENDA is still sort of technically a thing, but has been kind of, it's lost sort of its steam. And now it's the Equality Act, which is beyond just employment protections. Well, and this is a country that couldn't manage to pass the Equal Rights Amendment. No. Which only made women equal humans. A little side note about that. Do you know the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which covers sexual discrimination on the basis of sex, I don't know if this is apocryphal, but I actually believe this is true, that sex discrimination was actually added by someone opposed to the Civil Rights Act as a way to kill it. I believe that. And it didn't work. Well, because the South was much more Mm. 
much bigger then. Yeah. So I was also interested to see how the right is spinning this. I went to the Heritage Foundation website and saw this heading for an article. Pelosi's Equality Act could lead to more parents losing custody of kids who want gender transition by Emily Cow, the director of the Richard and Helen DeVos. Hmm, where have I heard that name before? Hmm. Yes, the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society at the Heritage Foundation. Ouch. And they're basically saying that the Equality Act would allow parents to lose custody of their children because their children actually want proper treatment for their gender identity proper gender-affirming counseling and perhaps hormones, et cetera, et cetera. And parents wouldn't be allowed to send their kids to conversion therapy, and this will prevent that. And I did see that in the Equality Act, it's also going to cover the religious Mm -hmm. restoration of religious freedom, whatever The Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Right, 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 right. Yes. Where it gives the church the chance to discriminate against anything and anyone on the basis of their religious beliefs. It will put a stop to that nonsense. And as I held forth about last week on this one, the original federal RIFRA, what you're talking about, was never intended to do that. And so it was actually intended to protect, you know, ideal, actually, early on, Native American rituals and tribal lands from government encroachment. Oh, we've gone so far beyond Yes, that. we have so gone. <laughs> so it'll close that loophole. That, so I have high hopes for this. I do. I don't have hopes for the Senate, but I do have hopes for the House of Representatives. Well, fingers crossed. All right. So meanwhile in Austin. Oh, Texas. <laughs> the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, but Austin's cool. That's what they say, but it is it still is cool. in Texas. I know, and I think it's a hard road for them sometimes. And this but is actually going down at South by Southwest, This is it? going, yeah, yes. South by Southwest, the, the fabulous festival. festival. They're hosting a huge Game of Thrones-themed blood drive run by the Red Cross. Bleed um, for the throne. You, you say, that well. say that again. <laughs> say that again. Bleed for the throne. Yes, bleed for the throne. I don't say that with any of the heft you do. So donors there and elsewhere, actually, will get a bloody Game of Thrones t-shirt and a chance to go to New York City for the premiere of the final season. Who wouldn't want to do that? Yes, the contest ends Tuesday. But wait. Oh, and it's run by the Red Cross, the blood drive, as one would expect. Yes. However. If you are a man who has had sex with men in the last 12 months, you cannot donate. Now, that is per Food and Drug Administration policy, not actually Red Cross imposing that. That's just policy. And I had forgotten about that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And until 2015, actually, if you were a man who had ever had sex with another man, you could not donate. So this is being perceived as a bit of a slap in the face to the many Game of Thrones gay fans. Yeah. Even Hodor can't donate. Oh, right. The actor who plays Hodor is gay. Is gay, gay. yeah. Um, you can technically enter the contest by, you know, and get the bloody T-shirt and maybe right. the chance to go to New York by contacting the Red Cross Donor Support Center. And that is not a easy-to-navigate page I tried. No, and that's not even really the point. The no, point it's is not the point. you're actively discriminating against gay men when they don't discriminate against heterosexuals who are yeah. doing goodness knows what. Yes. Nobody right. quizzes them. But here's the problem, though. Blood drives are good. There is a blood shortage. Right. I don't think anyone's suggesting that people should boycott blood drives. No. And the Red Cross actually has come out very much against this policy. Well, because all blood is tested for HIV yeah. anyway. They say it's bad science. Right. It's not medically supported. It's not scientifically supported. So what a weird situation we're in. We do need a blood drive. Red Cross is not actively discriminating, but this really rings a sour note. And they started out with the very best of intentions, I'm certain. Nobody knew going in that this discrimination thing was going to crop up, but oops. Time for letters to the FDA, but 
God knows what's happening at the FDA right now under the Trump administration. <laughs> I don't know. I know oh, there are yeah. people there fighting the good fight, but... <clears throat> that was the honest tea. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this message. Welcome back, Wenzel. It's nice to have you instead of me just babbling to myself. It's lovely to be here. Well, the film Girl from writer-director Lucas Daunt was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Foreign Language Film, but protests from the transgender community and beyond derailed its chances for a globe and maybe even an Oscar nod. Steve Pride reports. I'm Lucas Dunt. I'm the director of Girl. And what is Girl about? Girl is about a young 15-year-old trans girl called Laura that wants to become a ballerina and that we follow on her journey to become so. And this was based on a true story of a friend of yours. Exactly. In 2009, I read an article in a Belgian newspaper about a young girl called Nora that wanted to become a ballerina but whose school did not allow her to change classes from the boys class to the girls class. And I had an immediate admiration for her and I contacted her because I really wanted to shoot a documentary with her. But the idea of a documentary scared her a little bit. And we decided to start writing a fiction film that eventually became Girl. I love the film, but what do you hope that audiences take away from it? I think the film, in essence, is about being the truest version of ourselves. And I think that is a quest that so many of us are facing. And I think this film showcases a moment in this person's life where they really want to fit in rather than stand out in the hope that we see through the film that what makes us stand out is also what makes us powerful. And what is the biggest misunderstanding surrounding girl? I would say that the biggest misunderstanding around the film would be that the way the film focuses on the body is because this film is really talking about the world of the dance of the classical dance and of the work that is put into that profession. So I think this film really uses the element of those ballet films, those cliches, surround around the body and tries to put them into this film. So I really feel like one of the things that the film would focus on the body because Lara is trans, I think this film focuses on the body because of plural reasons. The film being about adolescence, the film being about dance, the film being about also Lara being gender dysphoric. But it's a spectrum of reasons. I thought your lead actor was outside of the casting net of Hollywood. Could you have cast that role with a 14-year-old transgender preoperative ballerina? The casting process for this film was really very complicated. And we cast it for a year and a half. We saw over 500 young people. And it's only when Victor entered the room that we really fell in love with someone and that we felt like this was a young person that could really portray Nora in a respectful, elegant way. And uh, we all believe that he did so. Very good. Is there a website for more information? There's a Facebook page, Girl the Film, on which you will find all the information. And you're flying back to Belgium tonight? At 3 a.m. in the morning. And you're ill? I have bronchitis. You're a hard-working man, sir. Thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you. Thank you. Reporting for IMRU from the Netflix offices in Hollywood, this is Steve Pride.
Thanks for listening. I think this is much bigger than just an argument about whether trans people need to be cast in trans roles or not. This really is a discussion about how we tell authentic stories. And I am hoping that at least this conversation keeps continuing and gets more nuanced around this. Well, and if you want to check it out and make up your mind for yourself, the film Girl is available on Netflix starting March 15th. Fascinating and heartbreakingly honest, Kimberly Reed's family documentary Prodigal Sons uses its stranger-than-fiction story to speak near-universal truths about family bonds and human identity. Steve Pride reports. Leaping from Montana to San Francisco to Croatia, Kimberly Reed's gripping documentary, Prodigal Sons, is filled with revelations. A high school quarterback becomes a transgendered lesbian filmmaker, and her mentally unstable adopted brother discovers he's the grandchild of Hollywood royalty. But the documentary is really not about either of those things. Not really. Hello, this is Kimberly Reed, director and producer of a film called Prodigal Sons. And what is Prodigal Sons about? It's just about a family like any other family. It's about sibling relationships. It's about sibling rivalries. Underneath all of it, it's really about identity. And it's about who we are, who we think we are. And then when that changes, how do we fit back into our families? How does that change the relationships around us? In Prodigal Sons, my brother and I are both in a situation where our identity changes a remarkable amount. I mean, I'm transgender. I have had a shift in my identity, how I identify, how I self-identify, how other people see me. My brother Mark is adopted, and he finds out in this kind of stunning revelation in the film that he is related to some of the biggest names in classic 40s Hollywood cinema. Mark's mother was the daughter of film goddess Rita Hayworth and the genius who spoke the most famous word in all of movie history. Rosebud. Orson Welles. Maybe the biggest surprise is that everybody else around my brother Mark expected this news to change him and to change him in a particular way and to give him this sort of Disney fairy tale ending that would somehow magically transform everything and and give him a sense of identity. But what Mark was in it for was something very different. And actually, this news leads to a lot of unexpected results. It was actually one of the harder things for him to wrap his head around. The other thing about that news is that going into this film, I was the filmmaker. I was the one who worshipped all this classic Hollywood cinema, especially Mark's grandfather. And What you have in our family is a situation where my brother and I had kind of a perfect storm of a sibling rivalry. He was a year older than me, and he was held back. So we were in the same class growing up in a small town in Montana, right? So we're extremely close. We have a lot of the same friends. We drive to school together every day and go to some of the same classes, and we are extremely close. A lot of things come easily to me, school and and sports, and they don't to Mark, and that creates an even stronger rivalry between the two of us. Mark is adopted. I'm not. My younger brother isn't. You know, we're tall and blonde. So there was a lot of competition, a lot of rivalry from his side. 
just because I wasn't a quarterback and didn't get straight A's and wasn't the president's student body, I was more popular than him. I was good looking, I had top-notch chicks. Mark has spent his entire life being envious of my genes and the fact that our parents are my birth parents and they're not his birth parents. He's very envious of that. So for the first time when Mark finds out there's news about who he's related to, I become envious of his genes. <laughs> and this sort of amazing twist happens where things kind of level out between the two of us and we both kind of understand what, what it's like, I think, to be on the other side of the equation. But the discovery of his famous lineage and even his brother's gender transition did little to lessen Mark's unbridled sibling jealousy. I think Mark probably had some misdiagnosed learning disabilities when he was growing up. And then when he was 21, he was in a car accident and he had a head injury. For about four, almost five years, we thought that nothing was going to happen. And then out of nowhere... Mark develops symptoms in the form of grand mal seizures. But the real effect that it has in our family is that since Mark's head injury, his ability to control his impulses is just gone. I mean, there's, there's, there's really not much of a, of a lid on that, and he has a, a difficult time controlling himself. And some of those uh, episodes are, are caught in the film, and it can be a very unpredictable scary thing because you're not sure where things are going to go. Okay. Can I ask you where is Mark now? He's at the jail. When we come to a call where family members are involved, it has nothing to do with the family members. It, It has to do with the state. I felt that you guys had enough fear that he violated Montana law. Is there any way that he could be taken to Warm Springs for an evaluation. One of the great ironies of this film is that Mark's jealousy was directed toward a brother that really never existed. Kimberly worked hard at being a boy, but it was never more than a facade. The kind of sense of peace or comfort that I have since my transition has to do with not feeling like I need to prove that to anyone. Another way to look at that is that in one of the interviews that we were doing with a friend from high school, he referred kind of loosely to the fact that football was fun, that, you know, even if you're losing, it's still fun to play. And that really threw me for a loop. It really made me question because I realized that all of those years, I wasn't doing it to have fun. I mean, it wasn't fun. You're not supposed to have fun doing that. You do it to prove all these things to everybody else and to yourself. And for me, it was all about proving my masculinity, my capability, that if I could be good at the somewhat arbitrary rules for this game that everybody seemed to pay a lot of attention to, then that would really prove to me and to everybody else that I was really normal, that I was male, that I wasn't so different. You know, I was trying to prove it to a lot of other people, and I think more than anyone else, trying to prove it to myself. And what has her journey taught her? Who you think you are is different than who everybody else thinks you are. And uh, families kind of exacerbate that quite a bit because families know you very intimately and they know you when you're young. And then if you leave and you try to reinvent yourself one way or another, they're the ones who always remember that old version. And uh, they're the ones who sometimes bring it back and won't let you forget. And that causes a lot of friction. But I think that, especially in the LGBT community, a lot of us leave 
and do some reinventing and then have a harder time kind of reincorporating because we went to the big city and came out or we, you know, had this chapter of our lives where we really had to separate ourselves from this complicated history. So reintegrating that in the future, if you do it, and not everybody has to do it, by the way, causes a lot of friction. But I think that that sense of reinventing yourself, it happens no matter who you are. One of the great things about Prodigal Sons is the random, stranger-than-fiction nature of the ride. There's a quote that I love. It's actually from Orson Welles, and he said, don't give them what they ask for. Give them what they never thought was possible. We were talking earlier about how surprising life is, and I think that storytelling that has those surprises built into it is interesting to us because, to a certain extent, it replicates life. You know, it's like, I never thought I'd have to be dealing with that, and look, I'm dealing with that now. And um, in the same way that it's surprising that in high school I was most likely to succeed, and this is probably the last thing that anybody ever would have imagined, in the same way... My brother Mark, in his quest to find a a sense of identity and a sense of meaning through sharing his story with others, that that has happened now, despite all of the difficulty in getting there, I think that's pretty amazing, too. This has been a conversation with filmmaker Kimberly Reed. Prodigal Sons is being distributed in the U.S. by First Run Features. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Prodigal Sons is available on DVD as well as VOD via iTunes and Amazon. So you think you already know everything there is to know about the creation of the iconic rainbow flag in 1978? Well, we've got a surprise for you. After the break, I talked to a woman who was there, Lynn Sagerblom, a.k.a. Fairy Argyle Rainbow. And Steve Pride talks to Will Fellows about his book, Gay Bar, the fabulous true story of a daring woman and her boys in the 1950s. Stick around. We'll be right back. The Power of Women's Music, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Women's Music was about advancing feminism, giving a voice to lesbians, and promoting women in the recording industry. The first National Women's Music Festival took place in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, in 1974. Relative unknowns were set to perform early during the week-long festival, with the Saturday show headlined by Roberta Flack and Yoko Ono. When they canceled at the last minute, festival organizers scrambled to save the show. They assembled several of the lesser-known artists, Chris Williamson, Meg Christian, Vicki Randall, and Margie Adam, who quickly put an act together. By pulling off a showstopper, these four women personified empowerment, the very definition of women's music. In the process, they became revered icons of the genre. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Sonia, of Disappear Fear. Hello, I'm Jerry Jewell, cousin Jerry from Facts of Life and Jewell from Deadwood. And you are listening to I Am Are You Radio Magazine. I am are you. I am are you. Welcome back. You're listening to I Am Are You Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Before we delve into the creation of the rainbow flag in San Francisco, let's take a look at an early gay drinking establishment in the City of Angels as Steve Pride talks with Will Fellows about his book, The Fabulous True Story of a Daring Woman and Her Boys in the 1950s.
From a 21st century perspective, gay bar owner Helen Branson wasn't particularly progressive. The 60-something former palm reader barred the obvious homosexual from the small tavern she opened in 1952 on a seedy stretch of LA's Melrose Avenue. Helen strongly preferred patrons who could pass for straight and did not allow sexual touching. But by melding this new edition of Branson's 1957 memoir, Gay Bar, with a study of 1950s America, historian Will Fellows illuminates how ahead of her time Helen Branson really was. Several years after Helen opened this bar in 52, she decided, in the midst of probably the most anti-homosexual period of the 1950s, the, the very midsection of that decade, that she had something to say about homosexual people. She knew them well. She knew that the common perception of homosexuals was way off base, and she wanted to add her voice to a very small chorus of people who were speaking out in support of gay people. And so she wrote this little book, and it was published in 1957 by a small press in San Francisco called Pangraphic Press. It was a press that was very closely associated with the Mattachine Society. In 1957, just having the word gay in the book title was daring. And as for what was inside the book... Of course, Helen talks about her experiences running the bar, what motivated her to do it, some of her experiences in dealing with law enforcement and the Alcoholic Beverage Control Department and just kind of local neighborhood hazards. And she also talks about the circumstances of gay people, gay men in particular, because Helen's bar was a bar for homosexual men. That was very common in that period. There were bars, certainly, that were mixed, both lesbians and gay men, but it was very common to have segregated bars. And Helen was just interested in a gay male clientele. And Helen was especially accommodating of gay men for whom presenting as what you might call sort of respectable, average guy homosexuals was important. And again, this was also very common. This was a reflection of the general prevailing mood and sensibility in the gay community at that time, that those who were too obvious, those who were too swish, too flamboyant, too out there, posed a real problem for lots of gay people because the common view was, in order to win acceptance in American society, we need to present ourselves as sort of everyday people who are no different from anybody else except for the fact that we're attracted in our love and in our sexual attraction to those of our own sex. So when you look at, for example, the Mattachine Review or One magazine from that time period or The Ladder, which was a lesbian publication published in San Francisco, the letters and articles in those magazines over and over reiterate the importance of not trampling on or offending too greatly the sort of gender standards for the 1950s. I asked fellows to take us there, to Helen's Bar, on a typical night. Helen's Bar at 5124 Melrose was in an old commercial building, small. It was a brick building that was divided down the middle. Helen's fairly narrow, small bar occupied one side, and a sort of greasy spoon cafe occupied the other side. Prior to her ownership of it, it was 
what she calls a bucket of blood. It was a very rowdy bar in which fistfights that spilled out onto the parking lots were very common, and then the guys would go back in for drinks to make up and stage their next fistfight, I guess. Obviously not a gay bar. So when Helen took it over, she says that you know many in the neighborhood welcomed the change from that more rowdy, rambunctious crowd. There was a pool table. There was a jukebox. There was a payphone, a cigarette machine, I believe, a small partitioned-off space at the back for a restroom, and then all along one side was an old bar with a back bar. I would guess it was probably built maybe in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And one thing that was very distinctive about Helen's bar was that she closely monitored those who could be in her space. So she had what she called a warm glass routine. If someone arrived at the bar and came up and asked for a drink, she served only bottled beer and bottled soft drinks. It was not a full-range bar. And if she didn't know this person or wasn't confident that she knew who this person was and what they were about, she would serve them their beverage in an unchilled glass, and she would reach behind to the back bar rather than into the chiller box and take a glass to serve their beverage in. All of her regular boys knew that this was a sign that they were to have no contact with this person until she gave some sort of an all-clear signal. And the reason, as Helen describes it, for this screening device was that it was a way of basically marginalizing potentially unsafe intruders into the bar. For example, for all she or her boys knew, someone that she didn't know might be a police department vice squad officer who might entrap or entice someone into some compromising situation that could lead to their arrest and their basically ending up with a charge of sexual offender for life, basically, and obviously be a career and potentially life-destroying move. And after working on this new edition of Gay Bar, what does Will Fellows really think of Helen Branson? High visibility, outspoken, straight allies in many cases are not especially numerous today, although certainly they are more so than they were 50 or 60 years ago. But to imagine at a time when Joe McCarthy was still very much alive, all of the homosexual and communist witch hunt activity, the country was very much in the thick of that, The year that Helen started writing the book, 1955, was probably the most intensely anti-homosexual year of the decade. It was the year of the Boise-Idaho sex scandal. Sioux City, Iowa had a big one that Neil Miller did a book on a number of years ago called Sex Crime Panic. There were just things going on all over the country that were just treating homosexuals as this minority group that there was no way to accommodate in American life. And here's Helen Branson deciding, I have something to say about this, and I'm willing to put my message out there with my name attached to it. I think that's inspiring. In 1959, the California Supreme Court overruled the state legislature to reiterate that homosexuals had a right to gather. But unfortunately, that same year, Helen's bar went out of business when the building that housed it was sold and slated for demolition. The reissue of Helen's memoir, Gay Bar, with additional content from historian Will Fellows, is from the University of Wisconsin Press. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Strangers in the night 
Exchanging glances. We all know the rainbow flag. I have a rainbow sticker on my car right now. But how many of us know the story of how our rainbow flag really came to be? Our next guest is here to tell us that story. She knows because she was there. Known at the time as Fairy Argyle Rainbow, she is also known as Lynn Sagerblom. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, Abby. I'm going to get right to it. Who created the rainbow flag? Who came up with the design idea or physically making it? There were three of us and a bunch of volunteers. <laughs> Every day, some volunteers would show up to the top floor gallery and say, we're here to help. And some days it'd be the same few people, and sometimes there'd be new people. But there were three of us, one of us that did the dyeing, that was myself, and three of us that did the sewing. I only sewed at the end when we were pressed for time and all the dyeing was done because it was 1,000 yards of white cotton muslin that we hand-dyed the rainbow colors in. So I was so busy with those buckets of dye and water, and I needed helpers helping me do that. And then Gilbert Baker and James McNamara were down in the third floor gallery with the sewing machines. Putting and, it all together. Mm-hmm. And I brought my sewing machine in. Other people were using that one, cutting, pinning, ironing, everything after it's dyed, washed, in the washer and dried, and it has to be ironed. A 60-foot-long flag. So 1978, you're in San Francisco. What was the impetus to create a flag at all? I was renting space at the Gay Community Center. I was already there making my tie-dyes and clothing and fabrics that I worked with designers on, and I had a little studio space there that I rented. So I think Lee came to me and said, do I want to be on the decorating committee? And I said, sure. Everything was much more casual in those days. Nothing was fancy. It was all volunteers. Nobody's getting paid to work in the office or... When we're actually a community? Yeah. Yeah. 330 Grove Street in San Francisco. Yeah, it was a good place. My sense, though, is that just the little bit that I was reading about that time, there was an awareness that the eyes of the world might actually be on San Francisco and what we called the gay community at the time. And so did the flag sort of come out of that awareness? You know, this is what I was... Uh, this morning I was writing to one of the people involved in this whole project. I wanted to ask him, what was the exact date of the assassination of Moscone and Milk? What was the exact date? I don't, I don't know. We can look at that. You know, I think it was after this parade. Really? So Harvey Milk died. You're right. 1927, 1978. Was it after June? Yeah, it was after June. Yes. I remember him. He was at the parade and he loved the flags. Mm -hmm. Okay. So Harvey Milk hasn't just died. I really thought that the flag came about because there was so much news coverage, but it looks like, no, there was just this firmament was already there of we're coming forward, we're stepping up. Yeah. And he was part of that. He used to come in and out of the gay community center, and that's where he gave his hope speech. Mm -hmm. But to be honest, yes, I I met him, but it wasn't like uh, anything because we were always running around like trying to get the work done. So we were busy. Everybody was. There was a lot of organizing to try and put this parade on. The flags came first. Yeah, and I have this sense of the flag being something very joyful and very positive. 
that was the whole point. Yeah. Joyful, positive. We wanted it to be beautiful. And Why a rainbow? Because that was my last name, and that was like I dyed a lot of clothing, costumes, and fabric with rainbows on them, and I love rainbows back then. And I thought, well, because at the meeting we were like, what should they be? And Gilbert was like, oh, let's do bunting on City Hall, which is just draped fabric yeah. of one color. Old-fashioned parade yeah. decoration, yeah. And then somehow I came up with the idea of, what about rainbow flags? Wouldn't that be nice? And I had some sketches. But Gilbert was not there at that meeting where we decided that it's going to be rainbow flags. I don't and know the original was. flag was eight colors. Yes. And it had pink. I When I was yes. looking at them, I thought, oh, my gosh, we lost pink. And we lost purple, too. We lost purple, which is so funny because those are so associated with our community. And the other one is I put two different kinds of blue on mm-hmm. purpose. I put the aqua blue and the royal blue. Why? Because I just love those colors. And to me, they're two different colors. In doing all the dyeing, I was just like, well, we have to have those. It goes pink, red, orange, yellow, green, a nice strong green, aqua blue, and then royal blue, and then violet. Did the colors originally have particular meaning, or was it just that they looked nice? Or they were, no, you, no, there was no particular meaning. Mm-hmm. And then there's a weird thing that some people had never noticed about the two big flags of that day on 1978. One has pink at the top and violet at the bottom, and the other one has pink at the bottom and violet at the top. Is that just because it was hung upside down? No, I did that on purpose. Really? Why? Because I wanted them to be different. Oh. You know, this is on purpose. It's my thing. Yeah. And there were two more differences that nobody seems to... It was the other difference that one of them was based on the American flag? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was considered my flag because I did the star blocking with wood blocks and dyes. I love American flags. I don't know. It's so funny because I actually bought a rainbow flag right after the Women's March. I thought, I need a flag for marching with because you do. And I bought a rainbow American flag. So where the stripes are the rainbow. And I thought, oh, well, this is somebody's fun play on this. And it was so wonderful to realize, no, actually, this was an original flag. It was for real. And you did that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Abby. <laughs> and there's one more weird thing. Okay. Okay, I just have to show it to you on this We're looking at some amazing photo. photographs of the original flags flying. See the American flag here, the rainbow American flag? Yes. Okay, we've got our eight colors. Mm-hmm. We've got our stars in the corner. Mm-hmm. And you see that thing right there? It looks like another star right in the middle of a stripe. Yeah, it's in the aqua blue stripe. I sewed a piece of LeMay. It's silver, a silver star in LeMay on the aqua blue stripe. And then if you look at the other side, it's gold LeMay. They're right on each other oh, in yeah. the aqua stripe. Because I had some silver and gold LeMay from the Angels of Light Theater company that I'm, my costumes, I had scraps. So I was like, oh, we need a bit of glitter. <laughs> so I put silver on one side and gold on the other. And then you just stitch it and they line up and it's sturdy. So we lost pink purple and LeMay, that just seems wrong. Yes, it does. (laughs) And I guess in some of the flags, there's just blue, royal blue, Mm -hmm. no aqua. Yeah. So when you look at the flags now, when you see that now we have a six-color flag typically, although people do variants, Mm -hmm. how do you feel when you look at it? Oh, it's beautiful. I love it. You feel a sense of, of ownership of it? It makes me happy when I see the rainbow flags. Even if they're polyester, even if they're six colors, they're there. 
Yeah. Do you think about those times of when you created it, or do you think of how it's evolved? Yeah. Gilbert needs all the credit for pounding the pavement and promoting the flags and stuff. But really, his flag was different from mine. The original flags that we made in 78, his were six colors. There was no stars and stripes. It was just stripes. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have the LeMay star. And they were polyester because it's really hard to do hand-dyed fabric. Yeah. And it's not easy. I'm still getting my head around the fact that this is a 60-foot long flag. Yeah. Why did it need to be so big? Well, because at UN Plaza, those two flagpoles, they're 80 feet tall. And there's two of them, so we know we need two flags. And then James and I started figuring out, well, if it's 80 feet tall, the flag should be, some people say it was 40 by 60, but I think it was 30 by 60. Mm -hmm. We wish we could find one of these. That's my next question. We don't know where they are? They were stolen sometime after 78 and before the parade in 79. I was still at the Gay Community Center working there with my little studio. And I remember I was in the top floor gallery with Lee, and Gilbert came in and said the flags have been stolen. Had they been kept at, at the, the top com- floor gallery the in the gay community centers? Yes, they were on a pedestal, folded up. It takes at least two hulking people to haul one flag. I think we had three people on each flag once it was folded up to get it in and out of the truck and carry it to the spot. You need two to three people. It's very heavy. Those weigh a lot. Yeah, that's So it weird. was a group of people that stole them. Somebody One knows. person could not do it alone. Somebody knows where those flags are. That was heartbreaking. Yeah. Let me just say yeah. that. That really broke my heart. We'll be right back after this message. This is Abby Dees from IMRU Radio, and I'm talking with Lynn Sagerblom, also known as Fairy Argyle Rainbow, one of the creators of the rainbow flag. Before we started recording, you talked a bit about the people. Who were the people that, and what the community was? We used the term gay, mm-hmm. which was sort of our catch-all at the time, but... You've described something more like what we talk about when we talk about the queer community now. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about who you perceived the community that this flag represented to be. I just thought it was everyone, our friends, our circle. It was in a theater company. We had a lot of gender bending guys dressed as girls, girls dressed as guys. I know I went through a time where I used to wear suit and ties, men's clothes, and hats, fedoras, and stuff like that. And it was all for fun. And I knew some very good artists, too. That whole group, Mm -hmm. the top floor gallery and all that, and the Princess of Argyle and Lee Mintley, the salons that they put on with the artists, you know, displaying. But it wasn't an exclusively gay group. No, but I don't think it mattered. It really didn't matter to me. To be honest, you didn't identify it as gay. I did have a girlfriend way back then mm-hmm. for a while, but she was in love with my boyfriend, <laughs> and it turned out to be a big mess. I was really young, and I really didn't have any experience when I came to San Francisco. I was still a virgin. So, what do I know? What a place uh, to go as a virgin. <laughs> <laughs> what does it matter, you know? Yeah. I didn't think it was like such a big deal. So you like blue shoes, Mm -hmm. and I like pink shoes, Mm -hmm. but that's about as far as it goes. Yeah. To me, it was just like, we're friends. Hey, this is going to, we're going to make some flags. We're going to do some dyeing. We're going to make some clothes. Do you want to be part of it? 
what does the flag mean to you now? Like, I know it brings up memories, but what do you think it represents? It stands for the whole LGBTQ, however you want to say it, community. But to me, it's also straight people. It's a flag for them as well? Yeah. Yeah. And also people's color of skin, that really doesn't matter. That just is another item, like, to me, I think rainbow includes every color of person, yeah. you know, and gender, whatever. And it's just like... And who, they go together nicely. It, people have been using the rainbow symbol for centuries. It's not new. So I had always heard the story of the flag that it was sort of one person, our own sort of Betsy Ross, Gilbert Baker, who you've talked about. And the funny thing is, we know Betsy Ross didn't really do the American flag. That That's story's true. not really true. true. And Gilbert Baker was an activist who recently died. But listening to you, I hear that it wasn't just Gilbert Baker. It was all of you. You were key to this. You had the rainbow name, not only that, but you had the rainbow concept. And he was sewing and you were dying and people were carrying and schlepping and buying and all of this <sighs> yes. stuff. How did we lose this story? At the point when this flags became stolen... I left for Marin County. I had a friend who rented an apartment and said, come be my roommate. He had a girlfriend named Trisha. We lived in Sausalito. It was affordable back then. It wasn't like how it is now. Mm -hmm. And that whole thing of the stealing of the flags, I just couldn't understand how somebody would do that. And I feel like I just fled. Plus, my major clothing designer that I dyed all her silks for her lines, she moved from San Francisco to Marin. So for a while, I was taking a bus over to work in her workshop, and then I just moved over there. And then, you know, I was gone. Mm -hmm. So it would be easy for Gilbert to come in and take all the credit because James McNamara... Although he was still alive at that point, he did pass away from AIDS, mm -hmm. okay? And James McNamara taught Gilbert how to sew. We couldn't have done it without James McNamara, okay? Gilbert and James were friends before, but they had parted ways. And I'm in Marin. I'm out of touch. Oh, this was key. 330 Grove got torn down and made into a parking lot, so there was nowhere to meet up for us. Mm-hmm. So the group sort of fractured. Things fractured. Yeah. And, yeah. and so Gilbert Baker kind of took the narrative, it sounds like. It was ripe. He could just grab it. Mm -hmm. And one thing led to another. He exaggerated. And then, you know, it was just. Do you feel at all sort of resentful about that? Or how do you feel? I try not to think too heavily on it. Okay. Because if I did, I could really be angry. And I also feel really hurt. And it's also wrong. Does anybody own the flag? No. Certainly it doesn't sound like there is any copyright issue or anything. No one's making any of that claim like no. that. Yeah. And uh, even if they did, his flag was different. He had six colors mm -hmm. usually, and it was polyester. When you see the flag and the, all the variations that people have done, you know, I read that in some cities, they've added an extra color to represent their city. I've got a little rainbow heart on the back of my car right now in the parking lot. People putting their symbols on top of it. How does that make you feel? That's okay. Why yeah. not? Let's spread the rainbow. It doesn't offend sort of your designer sensibilities? No, no, because um, I'm secure and I know what I did. Yeah. And even though I hadn't got credit for it, except with a few people friends. I know what I did. Mm -hmm. And so if they want to add to it, hey, 
why not take the rainbow and make it yours how you like it? It sounds like as you talk about this that you're also, it's not, yes, you want the story told accurately and you want to be back in the story Mm because you were there, but it also sounds like you are kind of pining for a spirit of that time where it wasn't just one gay man running with a vision. It was all sorts of people coming together for a vision, not for money. Yes. But for a vision. Is that right? Yeah, that would be great. And, you know, back then um, we were all volunteers, but we, things were, we lived like gypsies. Yeah. And we got things out of free boxes and we were, we were vegetarians back then. We ate a lot of brown rice and <laughs> tofu and rents were not expensive yet. Yeah, San yet. was a different you know, city. It was very, very different. And um, people came together at that 330 Grove. And also that theater company that I belonged to, the Angels of Light, that put on free shows. That Which was, is where you got your, your name, Mary yeah. Argyle Rainbow. Yeah, the Princess of Argyle named me Fairy. Mm-hmm. And then... Her name was Argyle, so I thought that would be great. I'll take that name. And then we had a friend named Rainbow Stars. And also I loved rainbows, and I was doing a lot of rainbow tie-dyes. Later in some interview, Gilbert says he named me Fairy Argyle Rainbow in 79 or something or 80, which is a complete utter lie. It's like completely not true. Do you think we can get back to a time like that? Do you think we can have moments like that again? I think we could have the spirit of it that we could regenerate it because it's really, you know, yes, we made we made stuff, but we also created a feeling. Yeah. I don't think that feeling's dead. How do we get back to that? Well, or we um, wake up that spirit. Yeah, I'm hoping to remake some small rainbow flags, but mm-hmm. they will be cotton, and they will be eight colors, and they will be hand-dyed. Oh. I'm going to do my two original designs. This is so I can raise the money, because I don't have the money to buy the stuff. I currently work doing security for a company, and it's not the kind of job you can buy stuff on. If people are interested in knowing more about this... Where do they find you? It's a GoFundMe page, mm-hmm. um, making historic pride flags with Lynn Segerblum. Um, we're, we just ha- got a GoFundMe page, and so we want to remake the original two designs. But we're just going to start small. At this point, I can't even make one. Even yeah. if I did it in my bathtub, all the dyeing, I just can't actually go and buy the dyes and the the fabric and I it's a labor intensive process a a helper to help sew because I'll be doing all the dyeing and ironing cutting and pinning it's old school it's hard to do it you're only one person really Mm -hmm. it's like forget about it (laughs) I think the timing is great for that I think it's more important than ever to remind us where we come from um and also get back to this idea that we do have to do this together yeah and I appreciate that yeah, and there was a spirit. I think it still So you're exists. keeping that spirit going. Uh, wonderful. Okay, Lynn Sagerblums, thank you so much for taking the time to give us this important bit of our own history back. And I think I want an eight-color rainbow flag soon <laughs> from you. I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> thank you, Abby. Thank you so much. I hope I can deliver. <laughs> Thanks.
Thanks. That's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, plus our tireless director of podcast distribution, Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. Catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. Good night.